This content contains graphic descriptions of consequences of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. We know that warfare has devastating consequences. This is particularly the case when fighting takes place in towns and cities, in neighborhoods where people live and work, do their shopping, and where children go to school. Bombing and shelling in towns and cities can change people's lives and livelihoods in an instant. With alarmingly high rates of civilian deaths, injuries, and destruction, this issue has been high on the international humanitarian agenda. And on the 17th of June, states will convene in Geneva to finalize the new political declaration that aims to strengthen the protection of civilians from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. I'm Aldo Sarabi, and this is After the Bombing. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Laura Boylo, the coordinator of INU, Bonnie Doherty, senior researcher at the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch, and Cesar Jaramillo, executive director of Project Plowshares. We'll be discussing the final text of the political declaration aimed at protecting civilians in armed conflicts from the harm of explosive weapons in populated areas. So the final consultation which is taking place is a notable time because it's the culmination of over a decade's work from civil society and international organizations making the case that something needs to be done to address the harm to civilians along all the other humanitarian consequences that arise from bombing and shelling in towns, cities and other populated areas. Laura, as the coordinator of INU, which has played an important role representing civil society's voice collectively in this political process. How significant is the finalization of the political declaration text? It's a very significant milestone. Like you say, in, in one sense, this is something we've been working on with others for, for more than a decade now. But the use of explosive weapons in populated areas is the leading cause of harm to civilians in armed conflict. And despite this, the political declaration is the, the first formal international recognition that this is a humanitarian issue and that it must be addressed. So I think reaching this point provides recognition that the use of explosive weapons in towns and cities and other populated areas is uh, likely to cause harm to civilians. And it's harm that is severe, it's widespread, and there's a commitment to take action to start to work to address this. So it's really by identifying and recognising this as a problem that it provides the basis for a first step towards tackling it. And so I think getting agreement of the political declaration of the political declaration will be a major step forward. There's going to be much more work that needs to be done to strengthen the protection of civilians. States will need to make sure they go on to join the text when it's open for uh, signing, and they. And by doing that, they're going to be committing to work together to set these new standards that in many ways, I think, is, is where the real work begins. So I think we see it as, as significant, but it's really just a starting point. It's not an end point. I think changing military practice and moving away from the use of explosive weapons is a long term undertaking. And so we need to be working together on this collectively over the years ahead, building on the shared goal of reducing harm to civilians, which is at the basis of, of action on this issue. Now, turning to the text, in April, we saw 
the last round of negotiations on the draft text of the declaration. And of course, prior to that, we saw other versions of the text that were shared and discussed among states and organizations. This political declaration is final now. What's iNews' views on the text and has it met expectations? Well, the political declaration is a, is a landmark document that accomplishes many of the goals that INU set out to achieve. The specifics of the language may not be everything that we wanted, but the provisions uh, it includes significantly will advance the protection of civilians from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. It recognizes the pattern of harm caused by the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, and its commitments um, are, are key. They limit the use of explosive weapons through policies and practices and other measures. It, they require states to collect data that will inform those policies and practices. They conclude commitments to assist victims and provide humanitarian access, as well as commitments to conduct follow-on work, which will be critical in the years to come. In addition, uh, I think it's really important, and Laura hinted at this, that with strong interpretation and implementation, the text of the political declaration can make a concrete difference on the ground. So it's not just the language of the text that we're looking at, but the actual turning that language into practice on the ground going forward. So the text is broken down into different sections. We have the preamble and the operative sections. Let's take a closer look at them. Tell us about the preamble, which describes the humanitarian impacts of explosive weapon use in populated areas. Cesar, would you give us an insight into this part of the text? Thank you. That's a great question because this recognition, uh, description and recognition of the humanitarian impact of explosive weapons in populated areas, I would say is a key pillar of this of this political declaration. In other words, it is the pattern of harm, the indisputable pattern of harm that uh, that. Uh, that is affecting civilians as a result of, of these these practices involving explosive weapons in populated areas that has driven the, the international community to take some action and to try to craft some effective responses. So it's, it's a very welcome uh, element of the declaration to have a very clear-cut recognition that there is indeed a problem, that there is scope for improvement, and that this requires uh, uh, changes in policies and practice to, to more effectively protect, protect civilians. I would highlight uh, just a few elements from the from this preambular section. First, uh, it recognizes a, a very basic point, which is that, that uh, civilians are under increased risk uh, because of the complexity, urbanization of protracted modern armed conflicts. There is a recognition that uh, that this increased risk is affecting civilians, and that a clear part uh, contributor. To this risk is the use of explosive weapons in populated area, populated areas. So that that sort of description of the problem is is very uh, straightforward, and the role that uh, WIPA for short plays in in this in this pattern of harm is is likewise recognized and and acknowledged. It also introduces the notion of reverber reverberating effects or indirect effects or, or secondary and ter tertiary effects, depending on how, how one looks at it. But this notion that beyond the immediate immediate and direct far, uh, harm, there are several other ways in which uh, civilian lives, livelihoods, and infrastructure are being affected 
we're speaking of uh, not just critical civilian infrastructure, including places of worship, sanitation, sewage, schooling, electricity, etc., but also psychological and psychosocial effects that are long-lived and uh, and that persist long long after the, the the actual hostilities have ended. So so it's important that the recognize the declaration recognizes this uh, in a holistic way these multi-dimensional sort of patterns of harm and, and, and direct and indirect uh, um, uh, impacts that civilians are facing in armed conflicts uh, today. Uh, it also uh, recognizes that there is scope for improvement, even though even though there, uh, the, the declaration as a whole recognizes the existence of international humanitarian law, it recognizes that some militaries already have in place uh, policies and practices to, to minimize civilian harm. Uh, it nonetheless says that, that there is that there is scope for practical improvement, and this is in a way a truism because this is this is uh, the declaration once again was born out of the need to 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 improve conditions for civilians during armed conflict. But uh, but it's welcome that that, that it points to this uh, to this scope for for improvement. And it's it's modern. It's a modern declaration in its recognition, uh, among other things, of gendered impacts uh, of. Uh, of, uh, of the, the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. Elsewhere in the declaration, it, it, it recognizes uh, uh, the, the impact on persons with disabilities. It calls for, for, for recognition based on age, on gender, on, on various uh, parameters. So, so it really aims to take a holistic uh, understanding of what is a great problem and, and, and set, set the stage for concrete responses that are actually going to make a difference for civilians on the ground. The preamble also starts with introductions to some descriptions about the risk factors of explosive weapons and good practice by militaries and armed forces to address this. Would you elaborate on this, Laura? That's right. This um, language on risk factors is a new addition to the text since the last version and a very important addition from our perspective. In this bit of the text, it recognizes that the risk of harm to civilians and civilian objects, so housing and other infrastructure increase as a result of the weapon's explosive power, its level of accuracy and the number of munitions used. So I think this speaks to and describes very specific concerns over explosive weapon systems that impact a wide area. We're talking here about uh, weapon systems such as large aircraft bombs, multiple launch rocket systems, heavy artillery, mortars and missiles, which impact a wide area. And if used in a populated area like a town or a, a city, they place civilians and civilian objects that are in that er area at an unacceptable risk of harm, uh, harm and destruction. So these heavy explosive weapon systems, uh, which are often inaccurate, they're outdated weapon systems, um, and because of their wide area effects, they're inappropriate for use in, in populated areas. So I think having this language around these risk factors is very significant. It should be very helpful when it comes to implementation of the political declaration and the, the military and operational commitments in this area, um, because it requires states to have policies to help avoid civilian harm. And so it signals that these risk factors are ones that need to be addressed in the process of doing that work. And I think helps from our perspective to make clear that a priority should be on stopping use of explosive weapons with wide area effects in populated areas. 
Now to the most debated part of the text, we are looking at the operative section 3.3, which ultimately is the signpost of the political declaration. As Ainu has frequently said, this is the centerpiece of the text as it addresses the commitment that would push states towards the ultimate goal of the political declaration to protect civilians. But this commitment has been the most contested part of the text between military states and other states and organizations. What's your thoughts on this? I think it's fair to say that the declaration isn't as explicit as we would have liked to have seen in terms of having a a clear and a, a strict limitation on the use of explosive weapons with wide area effects in populated areas. But I think it doesn't necessarily set a lower standard here either. We see this commitment as a commitment for states to develop national policies and to put in place in the the process of work of doing that restrictions and limitations on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas with the view of avoiding civilian harm. So I think what's necessary here are, are clear limitations and in particular a priority should be on stopping the use of explosive weapons when they've got wide area effects in populated areas. And this is because they can't be aimed at a specific target and they expose civilians to unacceptable risks of harm when they're used in in towns and cities. Looking at Section 3, this section covers a range of other commitments on military policy and practice. What are some of the other commitments in this area and what does INU want to see happen in practice to operationalize this section of the declaration? Um, so first I want to mention that that, uh, that Section 3 has an introduction or a chapeau that lays out the three goals of the operative sections, which are to strengthen the protection of civilians, address the humanitarian consequences with Cesar, discuss and strengthen compliance with international humanitarian law. And this shows that the political declaration is intended to do more than simply reinforce existing international law. It shows that strength, that's a baseline, but states are expected to take extra steps beyond that to, to increase the protections for civilians. And that, that lays the groundwork for section three. Uh, which lays out practical steps for limiting the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. And I'll highlight some of the the key elements. The first is there are several paragraphs that that address national policy and practice. And Laura mentioned 3.3, which is the core provision of the the declaration and calls on states, and calls on armed forces to adopt policies and practice that, quote, restrict or refrain from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. And that can be is important how it's interpreted, and I think we argue that states should refrain or avoid basically um, use of explosive weapons with wide with wide area effects in populated areas. Those are always unacceptable, and the preamble has has made that clear. And they should restrict the use of explosive weapons in populated areas in all other circumstances. The 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 section three also calls for taking into account. Um, the long-term effects, the reverberating effects of explosive weapons, uh, which it says are also discussed, um, and it calls for training on these policies and practices, which is critical. It's not just about having policies, but training on them. And it also requires commit states to implement those policies and practices, but also to review and improve them. And they can do that by taking into account um, the results of damage assessments and lessons learned. They're required to take those in to do those. And Ainu also asks, argues that civilian harm tracking should be done and that that should be part of the process. In addition to the commitments on policies and practices, Section 3 
calls for advancing civilian protection in other ways, such as uh, through risk education and marking and clearance and destruction of explosive remnants of war, uh, through um, disseminating and promoting implementation of international humanitarian law, and so forth. So our job is now is to ensure that these provisions are interpreted and implemented strongly to ensure that they maximize the protection of civilians from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. Could you talk us through Section 4, which contains a number of more humanitarian-centered commitments in the Declaration? Right. Um, Section 4 is also part of the the operative uh, uh, sections of the political declaration. And even though Section 3, understandably, uh, is receiving a lot of the attention, uh, because it's, it's the section that contains the commitment to, to restrict or limit or move away from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. Section 4 will also be critical to the effective implementation of this declaration and to, to the achievement of its, of, its, uh, of its goals to ultimately better protect civilians. Um, one, <clears throat> excuse me, one difference between the Section 3 and 4, I would say, is that, that uh, Section 4 uh, relates uh, to a great extent to what we refer to as positive obligations. In other words, not, not practices that, uh, that states are moving away from, but rather, rather uh, specific obligations, in this case, uh, to protect civilians, to provide assistance, to facilitate said assistance from relief organizations, etc. And these are, these, are, these are going to be critical. Uh, uh, sort of elements that by which to judge the uh, the effective implementation of the of the declaration. So just to highlight a few a few of these commitments uh, contained in Section Four. First of all, there's a very clear commitment to international cooperation and and assistance assistance among armed forces and other relevant stakeholders. And this will be critical to to arrive at a, at a somewhat harmonized uh, level of expectations around what practices are considered acceptable and unacceptable in, in line with the with the commitments of this declaration. And uh, the, the the text goes further in saying that these, these exchanges of information, this cooperation is intended to develop good policies and practices, specifically to enhance the protection of civilians. So once again, the the goal is embedded here in the in the wording of section four as as uh, as something that that uh, that that is based on a recognition of the problem and the need to do more to protect civilians. There is a great premium placed on data sharing and on collecting, sharing, dissemination uh, uh, information, disaggregating information by different uh, sort of uh, parameters related to to to. to to different attributes of the civilian population, and uh, as we stated at the beginning of this of this recording, the 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 move to negotiate this political declaration in the first place was driven by a recognition of a grave problem, of a grave pattern of harm, whereby a vast majority of casualties when explosive weapons are used in populated areas are and have been uh, civilian. So, if if this political declaration is 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 to have a, a concrete impact, I, I think there's a reasonable and fair expectation to see to see changes in those in those numbers, to to see an improvement in the pattern of, of harm to civilians, to to see concrete uh, adjustments in military policies and practice. And the way to know this, if, if there are, there is indeed an improvement in the conditions for civilians in, in on the ground, is through through factual data, through credible data, and 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 through data that will hopefully be be shared and disseminated and made publicly available as called for by the by the declaration. 
Another critical aspect of Section 4 has to do with assistance to victims, and this is something that civil society organizations, and including INU as a network, have pushed for quite strongly. And it relates to, to the, the commitment that states undertake to assist victims, to provide assistance to, to victims uh, in terms of, of uh, 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 addressing immediate harm, but also in terms of uh, effect, uh, uh, addressing harm to li livelihoods, to infrastructure, to, to the long-term impact of explosive weapons in populated, er uh, populated areas. But a second element equally important to this uh, provision of assistance is not the assistance provided by states themselves, but their commitment to facilitate the work of other organizations, such as the International Committee of the Red Cross, the United Nations, and, and, other, and other groups that, uh, that uh, provide emergency relief so that they can have access to, to those most in need and they, and they can provide assistance uh, um, as well. Uh, in terms of addressing immediate and longer term needs of the civilian population. And finally, the, uh, I would highlight the, the fact that the declaration calls for regular meetings in order to review implementation. And this is, this is a critical part of the institutional framework that, that will sustain the regime around the political declaration. And, uh, and it's important that, uh, that uh, more specificity be achieved as, as this process unfolds. And that indeed there is some regularity to these meetings because that, is the, the, that will be a key point at which to, to assess implementation, to bring together various stakeholders in and out of government to monitor the extent to which, uh, to which uh, states are ad actually adhering to the commitments that they have that they have um, assumed under this text. Now, you've said that the declaration is the start of a process of work and not to be seen as the end point. What is it that INU wants to see happen next? Well, I think the next practical step is going to be a signing conference that will hopefully take place in a few months and before the end of this year where the first group of states will formally join the declaration and this group of states will be able to discuss the ways ahead and, and start to plan the, the next phase of work under, under the political declaration. So I think the key thing now is that states work to be in a position to join the political declaration at this point and when it's open for, for signature. And then states will need to begin implementing it without delay and in an effective way. And that means in ways that will prevent the sort of harm to civilians that we're concerned about and that's laid out in the, the preamble of the text and in a way that's going to make a difference on the ground. So they will need to start to develop policies to operationalise the declaration at the national level and bring about the changes that we want to see happen in practice and that is in line with the declaration's aim and its commitment. So this is going to be particularly important, I think, when it comes to changing military policy and practice. Um, and I think states' work in this area is going to be really crucial. I knew, of course, will be continuing to work on the political declaration, uh, promoting it, encouraging states to join it and promoting strong implementation but it's the primary responsibility of states to protect civilians. And so it's really crucial that there is uh, leadership and active implementation work by states on this issue. Um, like we heard from Cesar and others, the political declaration creates a, a platform for future work on this issue. It recognises the importance of building an inclusive community of practice 
um, bringing together representatives from militaries, from humanitarian organizations, governments and others that are all working together to, to fulfill this shared goal of reducing civilian harm. So I think it, it, it recognizes, and we certainly see this as a, a starting point. It's, it's not an end point. Changing military practice away from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas is going to be uh, very much a long-term undertaking that builds on, on this shared goal. So we will be working and uh, supporting uh, the development and, and building these stronger standards and driving forward this change that we'll, we hope to see take place over time. I, I don't know whether the, the declaration's impact is going to be immediate, probably not, but I think it does demonstrate commitment to taking action in this area. So it's going to be important to have a good number of states uh, ready to sign on to this declaration at the first opportunity. Ultimately, this political declaration is working towards a bigger picture. What is the bigger picture when it comes to the main objective of this work? And what do you want to see happen on the ground and in terms of protecting people? Well, the declaration itself is, is an achievement and it should be should be remarked on and celebrated. But ultimately, our goal is, as you said, is the is what happens on the ground. And we want to see changes in the practice of war, um, new standards set, new norms set, and states avoiding the use of explosive weapons and pop in populated areas, explosive weapons with wide area effects in populated areas. Um, we want them to learn from their mistakes due to civilian harm tracking and data collection. We want them to be assisting victims, to be uh, ensuring humanitarian access, all these things that um, turn the words on paper into um, actions on the ground. And although it may take time, the ultimate sign of impact is not just changes in practice, but ultimate sign of impact will be the reduction of casualties and reduction of harm to civilian objects, reduction of the reverberating effects we've discussed, the the damage to infrastructure, which in turn causes uh, effects on education and healthcare and other basic needs and services, which in turn affect human rights. So um, ultimately, we're, we're looking at changes to the humanitarian consequences of these weapons, but that will be caused by changes in the practice of war, which then again leads us back just to the declaration. So that's what we're hoping will be the end goal of this. And we need to be patient, but we also need to be persistent in how we get there. Coming up to the meeting on the 17th of June, what are INU's expectations for the meeting? Do you think that some states are going to be prepared to announce that they are ready to endorse the text? Right. Uh, well, in short, uh, the, 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 the primary expectation, I think, at this point is an expectation for change. We, we want and, and, and expect uh, to see concrete changes that make a demonstrable difference for, for civilians who are, who are bearing the brunt of armed conflict, uh, including specifically through the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. So I think the value of the, of the declaration to some extent will be measured by, by the extent to which we can observe this, this concrete change. Uh, once again, it has, has been stated by Bonnie and by Laura through through concrete adjustments to military policies, practice, uh, uh, the commitments at the national level, etc. So that is the basic expectation uh, at this point. It is, it, in a way, the 17th is, is at once... Uh, 
a point of arrival and a point of departure, a, a, a point of arrival in the sense that uh, we, along with, with several other stakeholders in and out of government, have been working very hard to, to have a, a document that really recognizes uh, the harm done and sets the stage for, for, for effective international responses. But it's also a point of, of departure because uh, this is when the, the very crucial implementation stage begins. And I think that uh, if one if one goes back to the to the spirit, the intent uh, of of this de- declaration, the uh, one can reasonably expect the expect the, the implementation of the provisions to be in line with concrete better protections for civilians. So so we hope to see that, and we hope to see that reflected in 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 states' policies and practice as we move uh, forward. And likewise, we do expect uh, several states to announce that they are ready to to join the political declaration and to endorse this text. Uh, uh, the 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 Irish government, which has been leading this process, has made a deliberate attempt to be accommodating and and inclusive of various perspectives. And 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 I think that 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 is a, a reasonable and welcome position in a, in as much as it as it creates a condition for as many states as possible to join, and and hopefully not as a as a box to check, but really to join in good faith with a view to implementing the, the, the declaration in its entirety and, and, and trying to make a, a concrete impact and, and, and reducing the human suffering on civilians from the use of a WIPA. Laura, Bonnie, Cesar, thank you very much for all your insights. And that's all from us at INEW. If you want to find out more about the work we do, head over to INEW.org or follow us on Twitter via our handle at Explosive Weapon. Bye for now.